0: Good evening. My name is Mark Oakley and it is my privilege this evening to be able to welcome each and every one of you here to St. Paul's for the second in our series on Lent, Holy Week and Easter. I'll introduce our speaker in a moment, but for those of you who've not been to one of our events here, let me just quickly explain how it works. In a moment, uh, Bishop Stephen Cottrell will speak about what a good Holy Week might mean. And he'll speak for about 30 minutes or so, and then we will have plenty of time for you to ask questions. Lent is, of course, a time for discipline and self-denial, and so if you would focus your questions on our subject for tonight, rather than anything else, you might like to ask a Bishop of the Church of England at the moment. That would be greatly appreciated. If you have a question, please write it down on the back of your programme, then hold it up at any point throughout the evening to be collected. We won't think you need to be excused, don't worry. We'll know you're holding up a question. We'll then collect them in until around 7.40. They get sent up to me electronically here, and I try and get through as many of them as I can. So please try and keep them brief and please try and keep them legible. We're also taking questions via Twitter using the hashtag Good Holy Week. If you'd like to send us your question through your phone, just type in your question and include hashtag Good Holy Week and we'll find it there. We'll end at 8 o'clock and there's a bookstall up here of Bishop Stephen's books, including his books about Holy Week and Easter. And he's very kindly agreed to sign them for you over there. And now it gives me great pleasure to introduce to you our speaker. Stephen Cottrell is the Bishop of Chelmsford. His diocese begins not very far to the east of here and stretches all the way to the seaside. And to anyone here from the Chelmsford Diocese, tonight, a very special welcome to you, and thank you for letting us borrow him uh, for an evening. Born in Essex and educated here in London, he was ordained in 1985, was a curate in South London, and has also served as diocesan missioner in Wakefield and as canon pastor of Peterborough Cathedral. Before going home to Chelmsford, he was Bishop of Reading and he's also been a member of the Archbishop of Canterbury's evangelism team. He is a prolific author, and his books include two about Holy Week, The Things He Carried, A Journey to the Cross, and The Nail, Being a Part of the Passion, and also one about Easter, The Things He Said, The Story of the First Easter Day. But he's also written very helpfully about how we might pray, about Stanley Spencer's wonderful paintings of Christ in the wilderness, about Advent, about leadership, about time, and about the adventures of naughty Nora, any of which he might touch on this evening. To be personal for a moment, Bishop Stephen and I often find ourselves at the same events. And over the last months, when I've had the pleasure of spending some time with him, as well as hearing him several times, I've been struck by his accessibility, his energy, his animated humour, his lack of self-importance, and by his relentless humane scrutiny of the church and the world and himself, always making sure that the church isn't constructing a Wendy House religion where we can all act out our fantasies and make sure never come in and join us. The French have a saying for people who lack a bit bit of spark and life, who are, frankly, a little bit dull. They say of such a person, well, he didn't invent gunpowder. The thing about Bishop Stephen is that actually he could have invented gunpowder and probably placed a barrel where you wouldn't quite expect it. He is one of the fireflies in any dark night the church might undergo. And I, along with many others, are very grateful he exists and also that he's here tonight. He has said that in order to understand the cross, you need to stand under it. And this has to be done with the imagination, as well as the mind, with the heart, as well as the head. And we're looking forward to him helping us do just that this evening. So would you please join me in welcoming Bishop Stephen Cottrell.
1: Uh, oh well, Mark, uh, that was far too kind. Uh, but it is indeed a great joy to be with you this evening. Uh, the, the only thing that's irritated me about this evening is uh, that often when I'm invited to speak, I can go to my cupboard and get out something that I've used before and brush it off and amend it and off I go. But I've never actually ever spoken about Holy Week before. Uh, So the irritating thing is I've had to start from scratch in thinking about what I might share with you. So here goes. That was the day they killed the Son of God, on a squat hilltop by Jerusalem. So begins Edwin Muir's stark and beautiful poem, The Killing. And it's also a good place to start a conversation about Holy Week. Because Holy Week is nothing if it is not a journey to the cross. In the poem, all sorts of people come to the cross the hardened old, the hard-hearted young, though in the end they are all disappointed and feel cheated by death. It was not the spectacle that they hoped for. Only the women wait patiently, watching and not moving all day. And the poem ends with a question. Did a god indeed in dying cross my life that day? he on his road, and I on mine. Now, when the liturgies of Holy Week work well, we are converted. Holy Week is a parish mission every year, drawing us back to the central truths of the Christian faith and to the cross itself. We are challenged to stop and watch and wait We are reminded of our own death, of our entanglement in this death and of its implications for our lives. We are invited to respond. And how we celebrate Holy Week and how many people join in is itself a sort of spiritual barometer for measuring the health of the church. For if we will not come to the cross, what else are we avoiding? Holy Week draws us back and draws us in. Like a great work of art, the liturgies of Holy Week present the story of the Christian faith as a participative drama And because the Christian faith is always a story before it is a statement, so the creed itself is deconstructed by the liturgy, laid out and populated through the liturgical drama and then put back together as a narrative for life, in which we are the players on the stage, not just the spectators in the stalls. This is how all liturgy works. This is how belief is inhabited. So the question for this evening, how can we keep a good Holy Week? Well, I have four suggestions for you. Number one, attend everything. Number two, go for broke. Number three, punctuate the liturgy with other voices. And number four, pay attention to the space between the notes. And if you want to develop or even begin to do Holy Week in your parish, then the resource book for all the liturgies I'm talking about this evening is Common Worship, Times and Seasons though these liturgies, of course, rest on the ancient practice of the church. So first of all, attend everything. I know this is difficult in a frantic society like ours, but there are far too many Christians who sing Hosanna one Sunday and Alleluia the next, but do not come and stand at the cross. This distorts Christian witness and helps us to avoid the uncomfortable realisation that Jesus was not killed by wicked men, as the old prayer book collect had it. But Jesus was killed by very good, ordinary men and women like us. It was bishops, archdeacons, church wardens, PCC secretaries these were the good religious people who got it wrong. The good people who sang Hosanna and greeted Christ with joy on one Sunday were the same bad people who bade for his blood on Friday. Therefore, when we enter into the whole drama of Holy Week, we begin to see how we are implicated in the events Our muddled motifs, our misunderstandings are exposed. Therefore, we must make every effort and encourage other people to make every effort to attend, to be there. As Woody Allen famously observed, 90% of life is turning up. So, turn up, just be there and be part of it, and see where you are taken. One of the best ways of doing this is to teach and encourage people to see Holy Week not as four services, but one. One incredible liturgical drama spread over the four days of Palm Sunday, Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, and Easter Day. And just as you wouldn't dream of booking tickets for Hamlet, watching Act 1, slipping out for some shopping and a lie down during Acts 2, 3 and 4, and then coming back for Act 5, so it should be unthinkable that you would miss the central drama of Maundy Thursday and Good Friday and just come back for Easter. If you do... Easter is diminished because it is no longer the climax of a drama, the unfolding of God's purposes, where cross and resurrection are part of a single salvation story and where, in washing feet and breaking bread, Christ himself provides the hermeneutical key to all that follows, but just an isolated happy ending in a story robbed of pain and grief, and therefore also robbed of meaning and joy. There is, to my mind, something rather empty about singing Alleluia if you've never been to the cross. It's like singing the national anthem of someone else's country. The words and the tune may be correct, but there's no substance, no passion, No feeling to the song. Thinking of Holy Week as one service rather than four also helps those churches who, in my view mistakenly, feel that they are letting the side down if they don't anticipate Easter in their Maundy Thursday and Good Friday services. You probably know the sort of thing... um, There are churches where they will have some sort of liturgy of the Passion but feel obligated, almost as a show of faith, to add some cheery Easter declaration at the end. Rather, and as I shall say in a little while, the invitation is to experience the desolation and the emptiness of the cross. The whole point is that we do not and cannot sing Alleluia yet. After all, Holy Saturday is the one day of the year where there is no water in the font, no sacrament in the tabernacle, no Eucharist offered. We just ache and wait. And it is this aching and waiting that gives Easter It's joy and meaning. Only when we experience Christ as dead can we celebrate the joy and surprise of him risen. And I think here it's quite telling that many people, even Christian people, refer to Holy Saturday as Easter Saturday. It's not. Easter Saturday is the Saturday after Easter Sunday. Holy Saturday is the day of emptiness as we grieve the loss of Christ. So, how do we celebrate these services? Well, we go for broke. And here I uh, quote that great liturgical scholar, uh, May West, who famously put it this way, If you've got it, flaunt it. This seems to me to be a very good approach to liturgy. In the services of Holy Week, we have most certainly got it. A beautiful and compelling set of services. The trouble is, we don't flaunt them. We don't revel in them. Our offerings are often pinched and mean. We need rather to enjoy the sensuous and very hands on reenactment of the liturgical drama. Think of Holy Week as an opera, an art form which is itself a heady blend of poetry, drama, music. And think of Palm Sunday. As the overture, in the liturgy of Palm Sunday, the story of Holy Week begins. Jesus's entry into Jerusalem is reenacted. So make your Palm Sunday procession mean something. Please don't start at the gate and shuffle a hundred yards or so to the church. Don't, for heaven's sake, do one of those tired figures of eight inside the building. But seize the opportunity to make this a real procession and, by happy coincidence, a provocative act of witness as well. Join with other Christians in your town and even if at a certain point you end up going in different directions to your different places of worship. This, too, at least, bears witness to the scandalous disunity we too easily tolerate. On the cross, we are told that not one bone of Jesus' body is broken. Well, since then, his body, the church, has succeeded and continues to succeed in breaking every one of them. So, along with your palm crosses, wave actual branches and sing songs of joyful protest. For that first entry into Jerusalem was not a gentle Jesus demonstrating his humility by riding on a donkey, but... A carefully executed and provocative plan, deliberately acting out the prophecy of Zechariah, Jesus making his purposes plain. The Messiah is entering into his city. He is coming to the temple. He is bringing in a new order. And it is not as those who sung Hosanna expected, and very few would be able to follow all the way. But it was something that seized attention. Let us try and make our Palm Sunday procession do the same. Let them be signs of a new order. The Palm Sunday liturgy also includes a reading of the passion narrative, usually from the synoptic gospel set for that year. And just like the overture in an opera, this reading sets out the main themes of what will follow in the rest of the week, telling a story all at once that we are now going to unpack and tell in slow and painful detail through the other services of the week. The services of Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday of Holy Week, whether they be Eucharistic or simple offices like Compline, should be thoughtful and meditative. They provide opportunity to reflect on the other biblical stories of the week, not least the anointing at Bethany. Paradoxically, a story that Scripture says will always be told wherever the good news is proclaimed but is actually always left out of the Holy Week lectionaries. Could that be because a woman is the hero of the story? Surely not. These services start to take us deeper into the unfolding story and we should not rush to its conclusion. This is also a good time to walk the Stations of the Cross another liturgy deserving of greater attention and use by all parts of the Church. After all, it is simply another telling of the story. Then we come to what is known as the Triduum, the great three days of Maundy Thursday, Good Friday and the vigil of Easter Eve or very early Easter morning. Each of these great liturgies really deserves a lecture of its own, so forgive me for moving quite quickly over the details of what we offer. But with these services in particular, it is even more important to see their unity. Through the liturgical drama, we travel with Jesus from the upper room where he washes his disciples' feet, to the table where he shares the Passover and breaks bread in anticipation of his death, to the garden where he asks us to watch and pray with him, to the trial before Pilate, to the foot of the cross, to the barren darkness of the tomb, to the dawning brightness of the first Easter day. It is one celebration. One celebration stretched out over three days. It demands attention. It forces us to stop at each point along the way and see how we fit in. For this reason, the honed liturgical ceremonial of the Triduum is our greatest ally. And in the Church today, we urgently need... To up our liturgical game, learn how to inhabit and present liturgical drama, and bring to these celebrations our best gifts of creativity and enterprise. So, don't just read about Jesus washing people's feet. Wash feet yourselves. And please don't just wash one foot, uh, which happens in so many churches if they do it at all. Whoever heard of washing one per, one foot? You know, it's a kind of mean-spirited offering. Wash no feet or both feet. And why stop at the symbolic 12 people's feet. Jesus washed all his disciples' feet and had very little patience for Peter when he tried to refuse the gift. So, wait for it. I've seen this happen once. Wash the feet of the whole congregation. I have seen it done, and yes, it did take a while, and yes, it was deeply, deeply uncomfortable. So uncomfortable, do you know what it started to feel like? It started to feel like the gospel, like something not just brushing over your skin, but getting under your skin. So these are the liturgies which enable us to enter into the story. So, celebrate the Eucharist of Maundy Thursday within the pattern of a Passover meal. This brings out not just the significance of the meal, not just an act of fellowship, but even before Jesus gave it such new meaning, a Passover is, of course, redolent of salvation. And then when you celebrate the Eucharist of Maundy Thursday, make sure the service never quite finishes. No blessing, no dismissal, just the invitation to stop and pray. And on Maundy Thursday we go from the foot washing to the breaking of bread to the Garden of Gethsemane to the place of waiting. So recreate the Garden of Gethsemane in your church, or if you have buildings that allow it, celebrate the Eucharist in the church hall and then make the church building the place of watching and waiting and move between the two. And strip your church bare, take down the crosses, remove the ornaments, Take the sacrament from the ormbry the cloths from the altar. Snuff out the candles. Take the water from the font. Experience what it is to be church without church. To be one who follows Jesus without anything else. And when the time comes, for we all will leave at some point, find out what it is to be one who cannot watch and wait, who slips home and makes a cup of tea and catches up with what they've missed on television. Meanwhile, Jesus goes to his death. Many churches keep a watch of prayer till midnight and then read the gospel of the arrest. Some go all through the night. And if we stay... We go home in the silence of the night or the first hours of morning and we are very aware that the service hasn't ended. We are pausing as Jesus undergoes the kangaroo court of a trial by night and is himself awoken to be dragged before Herod and Pilate. And we too reconvene with the church stripped bare If possible, our Good Friday service will take place at those very hours when Jesus hung upon the cross. But of course, today, with so many people constrained by work, sometimes it will have to be in the evening. But the liturgy still follows the story. The Passion narrative is read, this time from John. A cross is brought into the main body of the church. Often, an invitation is sung by the priest three times. This is the wood of the cross, on which our Redeemer hung. Come, let us adore him. Then, the congregation come forward. And I encourage people to come and gather as a crowd around the cross, not one by one, arriving as an orderly English queue. And then, gathered as a crowd around the cross, held by it, sing a devotional song or hymn. And if people wish, they come forward and kneel before the cross, or touch the cross, or hold the cross, or even bend low, And kiss the cross. Indeed, as I think back over all the Good Fridays I have been part of as a Christian and as a priest, it is seeing very small children, or those who are very weary, or those who are very old, or those who know what burdens they carry, come forward in such a liturgy and simply kiss. On Good Friday, no Eucharist is celebrated. The bread that was consecrated on Maundy Thursday and reserved somewhere privately through the night is carried to the table. There is very little ceremonial. The Lord's Prayer is said. Holy Communion is received in silence. We go home. Jesus is dead. The story is over. His body is taken from the cross and laid in the tomb. We are invited simply to grieve. Oh, blessed are those who mourn. In many respects, these services are perhaps the only ones each year that don't need a sermon. If the liturgy is conceived and celebrated in such a way as the story is told, then the liturgical drama is the sermon, is the breaking open of the word. And I say this as someone who tends to preach at pretty much every service of the year, including the smallest gathering for a midweek Eucharist. I celebrated Mass this morning, there were two people present, I preached. But Holy Week, for me, always feels different if the liturgy is doing its work. But a way of deepening the experience of Holy Week is to punctuate these liturgies with other voices and other stories. So, for instance, I was once part of a church where different members of the congregation were invited to write different reflections as if they were different characters in the story. Then, throughout the Triduum, the action would, as it were, pause and people would step forward and speak in the first person as if the event had just taken place, which, in a sense, it had. So, at the foot of the cross... uh, So, at the foot washing, Peter told us why he felt things were the wrong way round and he should be washing Jesus' feet, not Jesus' his. And after Holy Communion, Judas tells us why he's going off to betray Jesus. And at the watch and at midnight, those who fall asleep and those who cannot stay faithful tell us how they are feeling. And at the cross, Mary speaks from the sorrow of the sword that pierces her heart. And the centurion, who both nailed him there, rolled dice for his clothes, and then declared him son of God, speaks about what it is to see this man die. And Joseph of Arimathea, a secret disciple, and oh, there are still a good many secret disciples around, explains why he asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. In fact, one of the books I have written about the Passion story, The Nail, began as one such Good Friday meditation, with several different people taking parts in the story and one by one justifying their actions and explaining why the death of Jesus shouldn't be laid at their door. The tradition of preaching the cross on Good Friday is particularly important for the Anglican tradition. Often the liturgy I've just described is presented within either a traditional three hours service of other readings and music. One of my other books, The Things He Carried, began life as just such a series of meditations which I preached here in St Paul's Cathedral on Good Friday 10 years ago. An extended Good Friday liturgy is a wonderful opportunity to reimaginatively tell the story and get beneath its skin. It's a chance to be inventive and to use all the arts and all our creativity to tell the story. In another church, the Good Friday liturgy was punctuated by brief reflections from members of the congregation who brought their own experience to the story. So a nurse who worked in a local hospice spoke from the foot of the cross about her vocation to watch with those who were dying. A member of the armed forces spoke about the complexities and moral ambiguities of being one under orders, a bereaved person, about bereavement. And if your main service on Good Friday is at the traditional time between noon and three, then there is also opportunity in the morning and the evening for other sorts of service. In Essex, where I now serve, the church in Malden puts on a performance of Bach's St John's Passion each Good Friday evening, but they do it liturgically with brief prayers and with a sermon between the two acts of the peace. In the morning of Good Friday, many churches have a children's liturgy, perhaps getting them to make and act the Stations of the Cross. Finally, Holy Week is a time to pay attention to what I think of as the silence between the notes. If Holy Week is this great liturgical drama, this opera in which we play and sing, then, as we know from other music, there are not just the notes on the score, but the spaces between them. And with many beautiful and much-loved pieces of music, there is that experience where, as a phrase... Turns and unfolds, a melody resolves or twists in a new direction or an unexpected harmony jolts, a dissonance surprises when you know what is coming next and you kind of long for it. But there is also that fraction of a second where the whole piece waits achingly for resolution... I have, perhaps, spent rather too much of my life listening to Chopin's Nocturnes and Mendelssohn's Songs Without Words. I know them and I don't know them. They are familiar and they are strange. And a slightly different interpretation of what I know so well releases the floodgates on new reservoirs of meaning and joy. And there is something about that expectant silence before the resolution of a phrase which is not only itself pregnant with meaning but renders the resolution even more joyful. This is what Holy Week does. So play it slowly. Be open to new interpretations and the sounds of other voices and other harmonies. Don't hurry it. And in the large spaces in between the liturgies, when we go about our business at home or at work, try to practice a mindfulness that keeps you walking with Jesus through the events of the week. Provide congregations with short prayers and readings, that can be said in the home each day, remind them that in the Christian faith you can only understand by standing under. This is the great mystery. You cannot pick it up and carry it away. You've got to stand there. You've got to receive it. Yes, on that first Good Friday, only a few people could. Those who promised most were first to flee. But let us be those who stand there today, not understanding, but standing under, standing with empty hands and hopeful hearts. For it is only under the cross that we will begin to comprehend its meaning, receive its complicated joys, and then help bear it to the world not carrying it under our arm but shouldering it with Christ for the sake of the world all this is the uncomfortable and beautiful gift of a good Holy Week and I want I so much want to tell you about Easter but I mustn't break my own deal with Holy Week I do want to urge you to celebrate Easter late in the night or very early in the morning. I want to tell you about kindling a fire in darkness, of dispelling the shadows of night, of a single light banishing darkness and then shared with a swift and glorious luminosity to a gathered crowd of eager and very surprised disciples. I want to urge you to read the scriptures like a nomadic people gathered around a campfire. I want to invite you to douse yourselves with holy water, to baptise and to confirm in the night, and to greet the dawn with a shout of defiant praise. But all that, I suppose, is the subject of the next lecture. So I leave you with the silence of Holy Saturday, the barren day, the day of waiting, the day of no celebration. So here's a tip. Keep the flower arrangers out of the church for as long as possible. Cleaning the brass and trimming the wicks can wait a while, Of course, we must make the church beautiful. But there is another beauty we have to enter into first. The beauty of the death of Christ. Of his complete identification and sharing in what it is to be human. His lying in the cold stone of the tomb his harrowing of hell and the bewildered grief of those left behind. We need to share this. First, because we know it so well with the deaths and horrors and diminishments of our own living and loving and the actual death of many loved ones, the many graves tended but also because the resurrection must always be a shock and a surprise. The first piece of a new story, not just the tagged-on happy ending of another. So, attend. Be bold. Be imaginative. Tread slowly and have a very good Holy Week. Thank you.
0: Can I please encourage you now to write down your questions on your programmes to hold up uh, the papers so they can be collected Uh, Some questions have started to come through already, thank you, Uh, but we need more, so please do uh, start scribbling now and hold them up whenever you're ready. I I just want to start, if I may. Um, Marcus Borg's famous book on on Holy Week, um, he begins that thinking about Palm Sunday, and he talks about uh, the procession of Jesus into Jerusalem. He also, of course, talks about what he says would have been the other procession into Jerusalem on the same day, that of Pilate, the governor, who would have to be in the city uh, when there was so much potential unrest because everybody was coming into the city for Passover. And he would have uh, come in with his soldiers and the, the armor glinting in the sun. That was the one procession full of dust and militaryism, and the other full of dust and a donkey. Mm. Uh, and he. He shows how the story, as it were, uh, plays these two against one another. And I was thinking how you've used the word provocative mm. a couple of times. Uh, I'd just like to know, because it's politically provocative or spiritually provocative, what, what's going on?
1: Yeah, I, I think, I think I, I'm primarily thinking of, of spiritually provocative. Um, I don't know whether you remember or whether people will remember that incident well, way back, I guess, was it in the 70s or 80s, where um, uh, Michael Heseltine, if anyone remembers Michael Heseltine, famously uh, rose up from the from the front bench during the Westland helicopter mm. crisis, I think it was, and seized the mace and sort of brandished it Tarzan-like about. Um, uh, it was a very powerful thing to do. He... he, he, he and he knew, ex- I presume, he knew exactly what he was doing. He, he was taking hold of a symbol of authority which didn't really belong to him and was brandishing it. I, I think that's a pretty good way of understanding what's going on on Palm Sunday, um, that, that we don't tend to get. That you know, I think Jesus knew it, it was carefully planned. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew that even if people didn't get the connection, Somebody soon would, and that word would spread through the crowd. So riding on a donkey, yeah, he was acting out a very famous messianic prophecy. He was making a very clear statement: not "Look how humble I am," look, the Messiah is entering into Jerusalem. So it would have, yeah. So that was a very provocative thing to do. Um, but I think it was provocative more theologically and spiritually than politically. Though it would be a huge danger to separate those things out.
0: Mm. Okay. Well, enough of me. There's lots of questions coming in. This sounds like a question that you might ask of Jilly Cooper: uh, How do we bring the passion back uh, if we've lost it? Uh, but of course, I think we we'll are play. I assume we're talking about uh, the passion, as in a good holy week. Um, how? How do? We, I mean, I listened to you today and I got excited again, and I thought, yes, yes, yes. But you know, then you've got to go back to your church. <laughs> yeah. How, how can you bring the passion back if you fe- if you feel a bit flat?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it, I mean, the word passion is such an interesting word because yes, it does it does mean um, it, probably the, word, the way we use it most today is we use lo- it's a word we use of love and of lovers. You know, we we feel passionate mm. um, towards each other and about things. Of course, passion is also used to describe suffering, and passion also. I think the, one of the literal meanings of the word passion is to be passive. Mm. Um, and all three of those things are true of Jesus in Holy Week. He is the passionate lover. Um, he, he is the one who suffers. And he is the one who allows himself to be handed over and becomes passive, allows us to, to do what we will with him. Uh, uh, so we must get the passion back in all senses of it. Uh, and I think all, uh, my advice would be Uh, that Holy Week does only happen once a year, and therefore it's it's easier to be bolder and more imaginative because it's not like you're changing what you do every Sunday. Mm. We're just saying, look, this is Holy Week. It is special. It is different. It's once a year. Let's try something different. Um, So I would really encourage churches to look at the liturgies, to inhabit those liturgies, um, and to be bold and imaginative in the way they celebrate them, you know, including their use of the building, their use of other people and other voices, uh, along some of the ways I've suggested.
0: Mm. Um, if I said to everybody here now, um, here is the news, everybody would sit and tune in their ears in a particular way, ready for the facts. Mm. But if I said to everybody here, once upon a time everybody would tune in again, but in a very different way, expecting to hear truth in a different form. And there are a couple of questions here about how can we use our imagination? How can we tune in to, and you've used poetry, opera, uh, you've suggested that we're coming, we're, we're being invited to live in a poem in the liturgy. But often we come into church looking for information or facts. How can we retune ourselves and be imaginative and creative? As two questions of ours. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, first of all, um, one of the ways to understand biblically and theologically what's happening in Holy Week is Holy Week is a series of prophetic actions that Jesus does. It's primarily about what he does, not about what he says. You know, Jesus is not, in Holy Week, actually, the great teacher... He is the great prophet. Um, He, he, I've already said, entering into Jerusalem is a prophetic action. What does he do next? He goes to the temple and overturns the tables of the money changers. Um, uh, He then washes his disciples' feet. He then breaks bread and, of course, the ultimate prophetic action is he he becomes uh, the the, the Passover lamb who is sacrificed. It's, It's action. Um, and our liturgy is fundamentally... Uh, and this is the great Anglican... Uh, 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 I, I know I'm on thin ice here. Um, I mean, I, I, I love the language. You know, I'm somebody who loves language. And I love the, the beauty, the prose and the poetry of our liturgy. But I believe that liturgy is, first of all, what we do, not what we say. And that's, I think, one of the great mistakes we've made over the years. So there's many clergy... If you speak to many clergy... Sorry, clergy, I'm going to be rude about you for a moment. Um, They say they're preparing for the liturgy. What they mean is they've got their head stuck in a book or probably stuck in front of a computer screen. They're arranging words on a page. And and if a church was ever foolish enough to ask me to come and help them uh, plan their liturgy, the first thing I would do is go and stand in the building with them and say, what can we do to make this building work for us? How could we move within the building? What are we going to do in this building, and how can we do it in a way that all of us are involved in this participative drama? Um, I mean, use an example which does come up in the Easter vigil liturgy, which I didn't speak much about because I think that might be what's being touched on next time. Um, We've all been to baptism services where the language is beautiful. Through the, although the church was busy trying to muck it up, but, but the language is through the deep waters of death, you brought your son and raised him to life in triumph. An mm-hmm. incredibly powerful statement. That statement is accompanied by the server handing the priest a cruet of water like this. Inside the font, there's a little pate bowl, <laughs> and a few token drips of water are plopped into it you know, if we're going to talk about deep waters of death, let's see and experience some deep waters of death. And we're going to wash feet, let's wash feet. Mm. Um, and let's not do it up the front in the chancel, let's do it. Um, so yes, as I said, if you've got it, flaunt it. The liturgy can be inhabited. It's deeply uncomfortable to do it. Uh, and then it becomes this drama that we're all part of, and then it starts coming to life. And it's that, and I'm not saying we get rid of the words... Um, but I would say pay much more attention to the rubrics than the text.
0: The uh, commandment, of course, to wash feet is as strong as the commandment to share bread and wine and I I often wonder what the church would have done if it had made it the main Sunday liturgy to (laughs) to wash feet. We would be having arguments over, you know, whether women could wash feet Uh, and what temperature the bowl ought to be (laughs) and how long the towel perhaps. (laughs) That's a lot about in church, and there are two questions here, I think, that are important. One is, can we spend too much time in church and not on the street during Holy Week? And the second is, you focus on when we're in church during Holy Week. What would you suggest for the times when we're not in church during Holy Week? What can we carry through to those times? Uh, Yeah, what
1: a good question. Uh, As I said briefly at the beginning, um, although I've presided at Holy Week a lot, and... And uh, you know, really do believe that the Holy Week liturgies can be like a mission to your parish. They are converting. Um, I'd never actually spoken about it before, just done it. So, um, so what, but once I started preparing the talk, I, I thought there's so much more I would like to say. Um, and uh, and some of the things I would like to say, which I just hinted at, is how we equip people to keep Holy Week in the home. And I think there's there's. Uh, there's great opportunity there to do that. Um, Can but, you give, give us one or two? Well, I've always been very moved by how, particularly in other faiths, the Jewish faith, though I see it in, in, in Islam as well, there is a liturgical life in the home as well as, mm. you know, in, in, in the, in the built, religious building. And I'd like us to and that used to be the way for Christians. So I'd like us to, to recover that, um, the, the use of prayer and symbols and liturgy in the home. But I'm also, in, I am very interested in the life of the church on the street in Holy Week. I, I mentioned the Palm Sunday mm. procession as an obvious example of where we can be on the street. The other one that I nearly wrote about, but thought i you know, I, this is already getting a bit too long, is um, the Good Friday Act of Witness, which is a very um, important part of Holy Week for many of us, which is usually an ecumenical thing, often on, on Good Friday morning. Um, And and I've known that done really well and really imaginatively with music and and mime and drama. You know, I've known it also be toe-curlingly and elbow-gnawingly embarrassing, um, as people just see it as an opportunity to harangue people. Um, But where it's done well, uh, the Good Friday act of witness out on the street is a really good thing to be involved in. And again, it's it's a... it's a blank canvas in terms of what you actually do um, with, with words and music and actions.
0: What do you think about some of the churches that have, on uh, uh, Maundy Thursday, have, have taken to the streets to clean people's shoes?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I've, done, I've done that several times, gone, at, gone out shoe-shining on, on Maundy Thursday and things like that. I mean, there's, a, there's an initiative in the church at the moment called Wash Day, which is encouraging people in and around Maundy Thursday to, to go and do some small act of service um, around washing. In fact tomorrow I'm going to go and um, I'm, doing a, I'm doing a shift in the local church school at dinner tomorrow, serving the dinner and doing the washing up afterwards. Um, so I think all those things are really good ways of making the, the prophetic action of Holy Week real for us as individuals and communities.
0: I'm always struck that there, are, that there are two bowls of water in this story. There's the one that Jesus picks up and there's the one that Pilate uses yeah. to wash his hands. And it seems to me that all the way through these days you're, you're struggling between the two bowls yeah. of water. Yeah. But I, I'm interested how people have... have have used their imagination and, and tried to get out of the church to do things like the shoe shining yeah. and ashes on the street on Ash Wednesday. It's interesting as well, there's
1: also two, there's nothing I nearly spoke about. there's two charcoal fires as well. Yes. You know, there's the, there's the charcoal fire around which Peter denies mm. he ever knew Christ, which, of course, actually, he was being entirely honest, wasn't he? And the one on the yeah, beach. He, yeah, he, you know, he didn't know Christ. <laughs> <laughs> you know that, exactly, you know, yes. He wasn't actually lying. He never knew him. Yeah. Um, and then, yes, then there's the one on the, the beach... beach. And what's interesting as well is in the Easter Vigil liturgy um, and I, there is a fire. And again, I would encourage churches not to light the fire, light your candle, and then go indoors. But actually, it depends again on your building, but to light a fire within the building and gather round the fire in the night and read the scriptures around the campfire. And then, you know, your, your sermons written for you, the two charcoal fires, contrasted and told around the fire. But yes, I mean, there's, the scriptures and the liturgies of, of Holy Week um, uh, 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 are so beautiful and there are so many opportunities for preaching. Uh,
0: there's a question here about uh, what contemporary worship churches can do if they're not formally using these liturgies. How, how can churches in that tradition keep a good Holy Week? By, by starting to use them. <laughs> <laughs>
1: And I, but I really, I really mean that. I, I, think, you're, I think church of that tradition are just missing out. Um, uh, uh, because if you're just doing what you always do, but doing it on Good Friday, you're, you're really missing an opportunity. But could it be restyled? Yeah, yeah, I'm sure they do it in their way, and I'd encourage them to do it in their way. But actually, um, there is a wisdom... In the, in the tradition. You know, these services are not something that somebody dreamed up, you know, in the liturgical commission a few years ago. They are the ancient practice mm. of the church going back hundreds and hundreds of years. So there's a wisdom to them that I, I'm very confident that if churches of a more charismatic evangelical tradition got hold of, I mean, the thing is they'd probably do them beautifully because they wouldn't feel too hidebound by some of the stuff that ties up a, us up in knots. And they find a, and, I, and I know churches who do do this.
0: Mm. The question here, the three-hour devotion on Good Friday can be painful and draining for the congregation. Is it also for the clergy, maybe even more so?
1: Well, yes, I think it is. I mean, I think one, thing, one of the hard things for clergy, and, and I guess for all kind of lay ministers who are involved in leading and teaching and preaching in Holy Week, is when everyone else is having Maundy Thursday, your head is on Good Friday. When everyone's <laughs> having Good Friday, your head is on, because you're thinking and planning ahead. There is an awful lot to do. Um, so it's just, it's physically and emotionally and intellectually exhausting. But then that's the job, you know, that's, um, you know, that, that's, it's also a, an incredible joy. But yes, it is very tiring.
0: I was—I was once told it was called Holy Week because the clergy ended up feeling holy weak at the end of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You do. It's, dra- yeah, it's emotionally draining yeah. as well. That's
1: the other thing, isn't it? It is emotionally draining if you've if you've poured yourself into it. I mean, perhaps just tell a story. It was not entirely relevant, but not irrelevant, I hope. When when I was a when I when I was a vicar, um, there was an Easter morning where I mean, I love the I love the Easter narrative from St John's Gospel, it's the reading set for Easter morning. I, 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 and I, lo- I love reading it in church, so I, I re- I'm reading it before preaching. And, uh, and it had been a wonderful Holy Week, it had been so, so fantastic. Uh, I'd, I'd really encouraged people to respond, and they had responded, and it was a church where there wasn't a great tradition of doing Holy Week you know, all the way through, and people had really come, it had been brilliant. I was tired, but I was also kind of elated on Easter morning. I read the story, and as I read the story, I just started weeping. Hmm. Um, And, you know, once you you can't... You know, once you start weeping, it's very hard to stop. Um, And so I just carried on. You know, I read and I wept my way through the passage and then, you know, stopped, about to preach. And, you know, the congregation are all in a right old flap. So somebody kind of nudges the church warden who's dispatched to the front to see if I'm okay. Um, I think, you know, as his wife left him, as one of the children died, you know, what's, what's happened? Uh, and so he comes, to, you know, oh, are you all right? And I remember saying to him, oh, you know, you know thank you, I'm, I'm fine. It's just so beautiful. Mm. It's just so beautiful. And it was, it was the, the sheer raw beauty of the gospel, you know, hit me that morning. And my one regret is that I still preached the sermon. Mm. Um, I, I, I wished I'd just sat down at that point because um, the reading of the Gospel, the keeping mm. of Holy Week and the vicar in tears saying it's so beautiful
0: probably would have been the best sermon I've ever preached. Mm. But I, I missed the opportunity. You began by saying we're, we're immersed here in a story, not a statement. Yeah. And stories, of course, communicate meaning but without making the error of then going on to define it. Yeah. Which is why I think Jesus used them. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't surprise me that people will weep while reading a story more than when listening to the sermon. Yeah, 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 yeah. Occasionally, they may weep, they <laughs> yes, may with,
1: weep at the sermon for other reasons. With agony, yes. yes. <laughs> but, I mean, but, but, it's, but, but, of course, it's, it's also true of the liturgy when it yep. works well. You know, when, when you see people, come forward and, and kneel before the cross and kiss the cross yep. on Good Friday. I mean, it's profoundly beautiful. Yep. Um, and, um, and that's the other thing about liturgy, which is a, a, a kind of a, a, a very common error which needs to be ironed out, is, is feeling you have to explain it. Mm-hmm. If, if you have to explain it, then it's not working. Um, you know, when you have got deep waters overflowing, you don't need to explain the symbolism of the water. It's only when you've got a couple of little drops that you feel, perhaps I might need to explain the significance of what's happening. When everybody has their feet washed and it's deeply uncomfortable, you don't really need to explain the significance of it. Um, so, the, the, you know, the, the drama is, you know, is, is, is acted parable.
0: Mm. You mentioned about when people come to church and they don't... Um you know they miss out uh, the whole yeah. week and they come on Easter Sunday. There's a question here, that I that's important. Um, how can we help visitors on Easter Sunday, So those people have just turned up because yeah. it's Easter Sunday. How can we help them? It says, "Catch up with Holy Week?" Yeah.: Yeah, that's a really uncomfortably good question.
1: Because um, I don't know the answer. <laughs> know, I, you
0: know,
1: I pretended to know the answer to the other ones, <laughs> but that one no, I, I think that's really, really difficult. Um, uh, I, I suppose the pathetic answer is you have to do the best you can. Um, and so it, it, it may mean that when we preach the resurrection on Easter Day, um, we also have to retell something of the story of the cross as well in order for it to, as I said, in order for it not just to be this isolated, happy ending without, without a story. Um, so, yeah, perhaps there's a great perhaps we need to I'll think about that one uh, we need to perhaps pay much greater attention to that
0: than we have Mm. it's a very good question Um, what is your message for churches that are not observing the Easter vigil on Holy Saturday Um, be polite
1: yeah well I think you're crazy Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, okay don't be polite Yeah, I think you're crazy. It's okay to be crazy, but I think it's a big, big missed opportunity. It it is the night of all nights, Easter night. I I, I would recommend not doing it in the night. I'd recommend doing it very early in the morning. Um, I found when I was a parish priest, when we had it on Saturday night, it was really hard to get people to come. And I think I understood why. Because the, the... that the biblical story is very clear. On the third day, he rose again. It was very early in the morning while it was still dark. Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. And so when you gather on Saturday evening, when it probably isn't even dark yet, it just doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel right. And I get that. And that is what still many churches do. So I would say, um, yes, you're missing out on something. Please give it a go. And I'd say, and really go for broke. Celebrate it at before dawn on Easter Sunday morning and I found when we made the shift when I was a parish priest from Saturday night to before dawn on Easter Sunday morning, more people came. Mm. You know, we, 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 we thought it wouldn't be like that, much more people came and I think so it captured their imagination and I just simply remember saying to them, look if you, you know, if, you had to, if you had a flight to go on holiday you'd think nothing of getting up at up as 4 to get to the airport so you can turn up for the resurrection, you know. Um, uh, and they did. And they did. Um, and when you time it, we, you know, we would time it. Um, you know, it's easy to find out what time the sun rises. You time it so that you're, you know, you're beginning the Eucharistic prayer as the sun rises. You'll ne- if you do it once, you'll never, never not do it again.
0: The idea of turning up for the resurrection reminds me of remember Alec McCowan who learnt the whole Gospel of Mark. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. uh, And went round theatres performing it. And uh, I asked somebody how they'd enjoyed it and he said it was wonderful, although it was a little bit odd breaking for a chalk ice just after the transfiguration. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There's a question here about the beauty. You've you've used it... couple of times the yeah. beauty of christ's death which is a shocking also provocative thing yeah. to say because for those who uh, have been close up to death it's it's not yeah. always beautiful uh, particularly at the moment so could you um veil a little bit on what you mean by that yeah i think
1: i think my if i have a thesis my basic thesis is that For most of Christian history we've presented and talked about the Christian faith on the basis that it's either good or it's true now don't misunderstand me I do believe it's good and I do believe it's true but that's been the way that we've spoken about it and um, and yet there is another great you know of those three as it were great platonic truths: there was truth there was goodness and there was beauty And I believe, particularly in a culture like ours, we're much more likely to both gain the attention and resonate with the longings of the heart of our culture when we talk about how very beautiful the Christian faith is, that the beauty of Christ... Now, of course, his death isn't beautiful. His death is a horror. It's a horror. Um, And it was the, the the most ghastly death. But when I speak about the beauty of the death of Christ, I mean, you know, there's that line in St. John's Gospel where it it says, "Um, loving loving his own, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. Uh, And what we see in the death of Christ is what love looks like when it goes the second mile, what love looks like when it turns the other cheek. And so Jesus on the cross is walking the second mile of love, um, showing us what that looks like, and it's very beautiful. So that's what I'm speaking about, not, not, not wanting to sidestep. In fact, I think it's important to look, look at the horror of the cross.
0: Um, Do you think that liturgy, though, can aestheticise, I mean, a public execution into something and make it beautiful? Is that something Christians ought to be doing? No, not
1: in isolation. I, I think the liturgy at its best confronts you mm-hmm. with the horror of a bloody execution and can't help but remind you of your own death and of the deaths of those you love. You, you stand around the cross and perhaps the first thing you think of is the deathbeds you've sat around of those you've loved. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, I remember when my, my father died um, nearly two years ago and uh, he, he, he was a man who, who had faith but like many of us, struggled with faith and um, a couple of weeks before he died I gave him a holding cross because we talked about he talked about how he didn't feel he had much faith at all and I remember saying to him well sometimes when you don't know what to say you don't feel you've got any faith you just it's nice to have something to hold on to just hold on to what you've got and he died with that holding cross in his hand and the very last thing he the last thing he did to me when he couldn't speak any longer was I remember him holding up the cross for me to see that he was still holding on to it even when he couldn't speak anymore and that's the beauty of the cross mm-hmm. that the beauty that in that which is so horrific we find such love um, you know so the ancient christian hymn has it you know where life was lost there life has been restored so the cross always says to us two things about the horror um, and the inevitability of death but also the the beauty of god's love so the liturgy if it if it, if the liturgy isn't doing both it's not really working
0: i want to stick with that hmm. theme a little bit uh, uh, the 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 doubt the emptiness, the the questioning, the barrenness, and that's a word you've used for the Saturday. Somebody's asked a question, how do you have a good Holy Week if you're currently without a church or looking for one? There's that sense that that nowhere's quite home at the moment for whatever reason, and and there are lots of them, why people might not have found a place that they feel has space for them at the moment, and yet... Maybe in a secret disciple sort of way. Yeah, want to have a good Holy Week. What what can they do?
1: Well, you can read the scriptures. Um, you can read the scriptures and read them slowly. Mm-hmm. You could read the Psalms. Um, uh, you know, Jesus died with the words of the Psalms on his lips. Uh, the Psalms resourced his praying at his hour of greatest need though even there there was a great tragedy he, he, you know he cries out um, you know um, which is as you probably know he's, he's reading he's reciting Psalm 22 but they misunderstand him even then it's one of the I always think it's one of those painful bits of the story even when he cries out in anguish they misunderstand him they think he's calling on Elijah
0: and he's um, reciting a poem yeah
1: yeah so so you can you know, read the scriptures, read the Psalms, Is that's something that you can do. The other thing, and I mean this quite seriously, there's always cathedrals. Um, and I think cathedrals, I know cathedrals have their own congregations, of course they do, I've, I've served in one, but cathedrals are also, they're very generous spaces in my experience. There's lots of pillars to hide behind. Um, and many of us need that. We, there are times in all our Christian lives where we need a pillar to hide behind.
0: You can often find me hiding behind yeah, that one. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> but, but cathedrals, I think, perform a really, really yeah. generous and capacious function yeah. for the church in being the place you can come to where you don't actually feel you belong anywhere except, perhaps, at the table of the Lord. That's the... You want to come to the table, but you don't want all the trappings that go with it. So, yes, the scriptures and cathedrals would be my it, two...
0: It's a really important question, I think. Touching on the fact that sometimes the church keeps people away from Christ. Yeah. And uh, I think it was Flannery O'Connor said that, it, you know, you can be as hurt by the church as for it yeah. sometimes, and, uh, and yet people still want to enter into this mystery.
1: It is, which is why, as an aside, you know, I am, it is extremely important for us to remember that it was good religious people who bade for his blood. Yeah. If you think it was bad people, you've completely misunderstood the story.
0: Um, There's a question here about prayer. How can we develop our personal prayer during Holy Week? So you've talked about corporate liturgical prayer. Yeah. Or, or how can Holy Week help to develop our personal prayer? Oh, I'm not sure I know. Um,
1: it, I mean, it can feed it. Um, the, the liturgies of Holy Week should feed the mind and the heart and the imagination, and in my experience, that always makes prayer a little bit easier. When I, when I'm, yeah, when I feel when I feel a bit converted again by the <laughs> Christian faith, um, then I want to pray. And, and the thing with all of prayer is, prayer, of course, is about our desire for God. The only problem with that is that a lot of the time we don't have any desire for God. Um, And when there is no desire, there needs to be some discipline. Uh, But discipline is hard. So the problem is lots of us don't pray very much at all, if we're honest. So something which converts us will, I think, quite naturally lead us to prayer. I don't think I've really answered that question, have I? I think I've avoided it.
0: Well, I think it's a very difficult yeah. question to to answer. Um, I think prayer is probably something we we all everybody in this cathedral now probably thinks somebody else does it better than they do. Yeah, it's quite difficult to. Yeah,
1: I mean, I I, I believe prayer. I, I think prayer is what God does. That's how mm. I think of prayer. So my my working definition of prayer is that. Prayer is the lover coming into the presence of the beloved and saying I love you. That's my working definition. So in other words, it's not me saying stuff to God, but it's God the great lover coming again and again into my presence and saying, you know what, Stephen, despite everything, I, I do love you. You are you are my beloved, and and I long to give you the affirmation of my love. And And, and what I call my prayer is simply my response to that great love which I... Seeing Christ, and therefore, in order to live the Christian life, and therefore, in order to pray, I constantly need to be converted. You know, I've, you know, that's how I see it. Um, I, I constantly need to be somewhere where I'm going to hear again or see again the beauty of the gospel. And Holy Week really does that for me. Um, and the other things that do it for me are things that I try to. You know, I try to place myself mm. Mm.
0: Uh,
1: where I can, you know, where I can get caught. So that would be my advice to anyone, is where where is the place where God is real for you or perhaps was real for you? F- find that place, go to that place, and let the beauty of the gospel impact you again. Um, and then you will find you are praying insofar as that longing and desire for God will be rekindled within you. And that's the greatest prayer of all.
0: Would you give us a final thought or two to, to send us out ready uh, for our Holy Week?
1: Yeah, yeah, I'd love to. And um, Actually, I, don't, I, don't, I can just stand up. I don't need to go back to the lectern. And, and um, I've spoken a lot about... Um, First of all, thank you very much for inviting me. It's been really, really good to be here this evening. And, and I've, I've spoken and do speak a lot about the beauty, the poetry, the drama, the music of the Christian faith. And, um, and so I've written a poem. It's not a particularly good poem, but it's my poem. Um, and, um, and I've written it as a way of trying to make sense... Of the way that I refuse what Christ offers me, you know that during Holy Week, Christ is offering himself to me in so many ways, and actually I go to such great lengths to refuse the offering. And this is, as it were, a poem for Holy Week, which reflects on a bit of this. And it's called, "You held Me." You offered me a broken piece of bread. I said I wanted jam and toast instead. I said that bread was useless, basic, poor. You offered me the bread and nothing more. You stooped to wash the tiredness from my feet. I said I need a bath to be complete. And not from you, so menial a chore. You stooped to wash my feet and nothing more. You overthrew the tables in my heart. I said I like them as they are, apart. I said it politely, showing you the door. You overturned my heart and nothing more. You held me like an etching in a press. You held me, held me, held me, nothing less.
0: Elizabeth Bowen once wrote that to have turned away from everything to one face is to find oneself face to face with everything. And it's something I often think in that story of Peter, by that fire, turning to see the face of Jesus. Uh, This evening, I think you've helped us turn again to that face, Um, and the Holy Week journey, like all journeys, have places that will take us in uh, very different places and very different levels. But what you've done, I think, this evening is remind us that for the Christian imagination is not a vestigial organ, (laughs) and that when that nun in the end of the 4th century went to Jerusalem and wrote about all these fantastic new liturgies that she was encountering. Uh, She knew she was in sacred space and it had to be communicated and spread. Uh, And tonight, you know, you quote Mae West, uh, you've got it and you've flaunted it. And on behalf of everybody here and for reminding us that this is a gospel that should really get under your skin and not just caress you on your top levels. uh, I want to thank you on behalf of everybody here, because I feel that you've really helped us pack our luggage uh, ready for the journey that is called uh, Holy Week. So thank you so very much.